And so tonight we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 15, and we pick up from two weeks ago, we left off with Rehoboam, and he's this, Rehoboam, of course, was the son of Solomon, and we learned from his mistakes. We looked at his mistakes where he didn't seek the Lord, and he did evil, he didn't obey the law, and he didn't heed good counsel. And so Rehoboam had his life, and he stepped into eternity after his 17 years of being a king. And then Abijah became king for a very brief period, only about three years. He gets one chapter, and then Asa becomes king. Now, Asa got three chapters, and so on Tuesday night, we went through four chapters, but Asa was the main event, if you will. And tonight, we're going to be looking at Asa and really what was the zenith or the high watermark, the the best aspect of his reign. He reigned as king for 41 years, and as a king, he had a very good beginning, He had a good beginning, and he had a a really good middle. He trusted the Lord for victory over the Ethiopians when they came against him. He instituted great reform in the middle of his reign that benefited everybody. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. But in the latter part of his life, he had a bad ending, and, you know, it's unfortunate, but he did have a bad ending. And since we want to focus on the, the good stuff tonight, because we get enough of those bad endings with these kings and chronicles, we'll focus on what was a really good season of his life and things that we can learn from it for our lives that are definitely applicable to us tonight. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 15, and it's referred to as the reforms of Asa. Now, the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa, and he said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes in the south for which he reigned over. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without law or the law of God. But when there is trouble, they turn to the Lord. But when in their trouble... They turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him. He was found by them. And in those times, there was no peace to the one who went out nor the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the land, the lands. So a nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work will be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of uh, Odid, the son of Odid, the prophet, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule, the courtyard of the Lord. Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, for they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. This would have been an exciting time for the southern kingdom of Judah. When the kingdom was divided, when Solomon died and Jeroboam, his servant, reigned in the north and committed all kinds of evil, and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in the south, we know it, it was a bad time for either place where you were. Slightly less worth worse in the south than the north. But we know that during that time, there's a migration of godly people from the north. The priests, the Levites, and the godly people were expelled and driven out of the north. They migrated out of the area and went to the south where Rehoboam was. So then Rehoboam reigned 17 years, and he stepped into eternity. They were defeated by the king of Egypt. They had that conflict. And then again, as I mentioned, Abijah reigned for three years and had a victory, had a great victory against 
Jeroboam in the north within the civil war of the warring tribes. And then here comes Asa. So we know there would have been people that had migrated from the other tribes and mingled with the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south. It's like a, a clear territory, these ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. But the people of these tribes, they had migrated and they were down there. And we see that even in this text tonight. And so here's Asa. He's getting traction. He's finding his way as a king. And the Lord speaks to him. It should always get our attention in the Old Testament whenever we read that the Spirit of God came upon somebody. Did you catch that? I mean, that's not real common in the Old Testament. You don't see it that often. You do see it, like the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew the trumpet, right? Like those things happen. But, you know, you can get a lot of Old Testament without reading about the Spirit of God coming upon somebody. So this is pretty profound. It's a dark and difficult time politically and spiritually and morally. And the Holy Spirit comes upon this prophet and doesn't just come upon him, but speaks a word through him to King Asa and the people of the south. He's, God is offering them a revival, a renewal, a restoration. He's offering them an opportunity in their generation to go for it with him and, and change the storyline that they've inherited from the previous couple generations going back to Solomon's failures and the idols being placed on the hills for all of his idolatrous wives and concubines. That's our context. Now, in this segment of Scripture, the first part, the Lord directs word to those that are there and now, right? To the king and to the people, the here and now. But he references things that were outside of their control that preceded them and in those days and in those times, and there's trouble and tribulation and adversity. He, he references what they knew and understood in their environment that was around them. They had no control over, but he brings it back to them. And then he makes this very profound statement in verse 7. In the contrast, he says, But you be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. What a powerful phrase when the Spirit of God is speaking. To have the Spirit of God speak to you, and it did, he did speak to Asa specifically, and in general to the people. A specific word from the Lord. Can you imagine if the Holy Spirit spoke directly to you? Well, he does through the scriptures right now. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. But if you got like this kind of thing, where you really got the fresh oracle of the Lord through the prophet of the Lord, and God simply said, your work will be, shall be rewarded. It's good to get that reminder. It's a very powerful phrase, or your works will be rewarded. This word in the Hebrew is only used twice. It's used also in the book of Jeremiah in a difficult time where God's promising reward for faithfulness in a difficult time. It's only used twice. If you use a concordance and even looked at uh, New Testament or translations in the New King James for the word rewarded, uh, you know, Jesus uses the word rewarded. Uh, then you got your reward or you lost your reward. He uses the same idea, and then it's there in some other places in the New Testament as well, about maybe 15 times. So maybe 20 times in the entire Bible we get this idea of being rewarded. Now, when we think of being rewarded, we feel like, you know, you caught the bad guys, like in, in a Western movie, and you get a reward for it, something like that. Or you think that, you know, you're uh, faithful on the team, you did all these things, and you get recognized and rewarded for what you did to the team. For example, in the NFL, the National Football League, they have the uh, Man of the Year Award, the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, in honor of Walter Payton for all the great things he did for the community of Chicago when he was a great Hall of Fame running back before he died. By the way, a wonderful Christian man, too. And every year, each team has one athlete that's recognized for their community service on behalf of their franchise in community and bettering humanity for their community in all the NFL cities. 
and one of those guys gets recognized and rewarded as the man of the year for the NFL. So in my mind, in your mind, we should be thinking reward is something that you earn. You got the, the bonus from the boss because you hit your sales margin and you surpassed it, so you get your reward. In baseball, a lot of the new contracts, the guys will sign, and then you have... Uh, you have rewards, you have a bonus if you hit you know, this many home runs and this many RBIs, and you get a reward. So I think most of us understand the idea of a reward is something that you're going to get. But for most of us, a reward might be defined intangible. Again, if we were a pro athlete and we had a bonus for certain things, we would know, hit this number, and you get a reward. I remember a couple years ago, Tom Brady had to throw an extra pass, I think it was to Gronkowski, when he was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for him to get his $500,000 bonus. And uh, coach had pulled Tom Brady out, and he says, no, I'm going back in. I got to throw a pass to Gronkowski to make sure he gets his $500,000 bonus for his 60 catches on the season. Brady was aware of it and went and did that. So those are defined rewards that we can understand in our life. Achievement awards. Well, the beauty of the Lord's awards is that we don't really even know, we, we don't know until we get to eternity what the reward is. We don't really know all the good things we did, what the, what the value is. It's almost like uh, the life, uh, the compound life of good decisions day after day. This thing you did here, a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. You know, this thing here and that thing there. And we just, we don't really even know, like, how much is really in the account of, of awards and rewards with the Lord. We're not going to know until eternity. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about ministers and their ministries, that their ministries will be tested by fire and they will receive their reward before the throne of God based upon that which is like precious metals. In other words, what they did that stands the test of holy fire. And if it didn't have the right motives and wasn't for the kingdom, then it's wood, hay, and stubble, and it's burned up. And I think that's a, a really good image for all of us to understand for just the life of wanting to serve the Lord and do what's right with the Lord. Because we don't have clearly defined awards or rewards with serving the Lord, we just know we should always do the right thing because it's always the right time to do the right thing. And it's what, you know, it's like the bracelet. What would Jesus do, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? We understand that, but you know, it's all by faith, isn't it? It's all by faith. And in this text, it's a great opportunity for the Holy Spirit to remind us tonight that your work will be rewarded. Your kingdom work, that every little thing you've done for the Lord in your lifetime with Jesus will be rewarded in eternity. There will be reward for it, for sure. God will reward everyone. In fact, we're told in the totality of the Bible, there's the reward for obedience and faithfulness and good fruit, and there's recompense for evil. Evil will get its just due as well. There's perfect justice in eternity, for sure. So as we think about this, and we think about our work being rewarded, there's some very simple and yet good reminders of what that work is like for us with the Lord that we can take and receive from the text tonight. The first thing about our work being rewarded, it is self-determined. There is a calling on our life. As Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Why are few chosen? Because few are willing to respond. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. That's why few are chosen. The calling's there. God so loved the world, he gave his son. <laughs> but he's not willing it should perish. But there is a self-determination and an accountability for personal faith or unbelief with the Lord. That's there in Revelation chapter 20 when the books are open and people stand before Christ. The 
there is an accountability for lost call, calling and opportunity with the Lord. Jesus called men and women to himself. But obviously we know not everyone came to him. And in this text, there is a profound and powerful exhortation that holds Asa and the people, but more so Asa, accountable for the call of God on their life. And there is a self-determination. It's like God preempts his excuses. If he wanted to have excuses, the phrases for a long time, in those times, uh, their trouble, their problems, he was found by them, them, there, them, 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 their great turmoil, well, the nation was destroyed, God troubled them, 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 adversity. And then all of a sudden it just says, but you, man, that's, that's like a song where it's like, going, boom, 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 and it's like, Boom, you get a drop. It's a total cadence change. Absolutely a cadence change. Think about it. They did this, they did that, hard times, these times, this time, adversity, and all of a sudden, enough of all that you know about your world, but you. And isn't that what it always comes down to? But you. God just preempts any excuse he has and just says, but you. Yeah, we know it's been a hard time before you're born, since you've been born. We know there's been trouble, 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 adversity. We know that. We know there's wars on this side, wars on that side, the Ethiopians here, these people down there, and the trouble up in the northern kingdom. We already know that. So let's move past that right now, but you. And you know what? Every time you see an excuse in the Bible, God dismantles them pretty quickly. God calls Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I called you as a prophet. And Jeremiah's like, oh, right? I'm but a youth. And God says, don't say you're but a youth. Don't say that. God rejected that excuse and held him accountable to his calling. Moses, oh, I'm slow of speech. and I, God really tried to work with Moses, didn't he? Like, I mean, he, and then he just gave him his brother Aaron and said, all right, you're going to speak through Aaron, but you're, this is your calling. You're the lawgiver. Jesus had excuses from people toward him. Oh, let me first go bury my father. <laughs> well, Take it from someone whose dad is 93 and you visit twice a week and manage his affairs. That could be a while. If my serving Jesus is based upon when my dad steps into eternity, then I've been on hold for 35 years of being a Calvary Chapel pastor. There's always an excuse. Oh, my mom needs so much care now. My dad needs so much care. Oh, the boss has me working overtime. Oh, the kids. Oh, you can't believe what my adult kids are doing to me. Oh, and oh, man, we're about to lose this property if I don't do this and that. Listen, there's an endless line of excuses, and humanity's had them since the garden. She made me do it. He made me do it, right? Like the serpent, right? The excuses start at the beginning, and they just never end. Self-determination with the Lord is accepting responsibility before the Lord. Even when Moses stepped in eternity, he said, choose this day, blessings or curses. There's always that choice. Elijah with the prophets of Baal. If the Lord's the Lord, serve him. If Baal's Lord, serve him. But let's see whose God is the one that calls down fire from heaven. He gave, he gave him exhibit A to kind of help their decision. But there's that self-determination, I think, that what happens in the human experience is as we make excuses and as we accept excuses, we, we so work against the call of God in our life. And in 35 years of ministry, I've seen a lot of people make excuses to just, the longer you hold off on something God showed you to do and a calling you felt, 
the more you'll cool off from it and the more you'll lose your passion and eventually not even do it. I know it in my own life. You, some of you are nodding your head yes, and we know it by human observation. That's why if someone says, oh, the Lord's calling me to do this. For example, uh, Natalie Dean came, and she's going to do a summer of serving the Lord. She's going to go on two mission trips through everything she's doing with Lake Hume. Man, listen, give her money right away. You got an 18-year-old that the first year out of high school, they're going to commit to the Lord, serving the Lord, going in the Lord, and going out for the Lord. Man, see, we want to support that and get behind that while the passion's there. And we know if you go when you're 18, it's much more likely you'll go when you're 28 or 38 or 48 and 58. It's so important when you have the passion and momentum to move on it. When you know the Lord's calling you to respond. It's way better to step out in faith and go on on a crazy ride, Six Flags with Jesus, than to talk yourself out of it in a parked garage, in a car, in a a parked car in a garage which many people do. And I've said it's like surfing pipeline. I've, I've been at pipeline with a lot of good surfers who are about to surf pipeline for the first time. 15, 20 foot, best, best ride you can have in surfing and the worst wipeout you can have in surfing. Over 30 people have died at pipeline. And I just tell them, look, that's where you paddle out. That's the wave you're looking for. Catch your first wave in 15 minutes or you'll never catch a wave. Get busy, make it happen. Commit, be wise. I'm going to tell you something right now. The longer you sit on this beach, the less likely you'll paddle out. And that's really the way it is. Hey, we got to go. You got to go. And not only do you got to paddle out, but once you're in the lineup, you have to commit. You have to. I don't care if you catch a little teeny shoulder over here or look out for the Brazilian girl on her bodyboard, whatever. You better catch a wave in the first 15 minutes or you're not going to catch a wave. It's a competitive environment. You got to make things happen. You got to paddle out and you got to catch a wave. That's how it is with Jesus. I think God's showing me to go somewhere. And do something. Then, then you better start moving on it. I think I might be called, you know, when Pastor, when, excuse me, when Deacon Matt Erickson said, Erickson said to me, Matt Erickson came to me about 10 years ago. He had done our children's ministry for years, written the curriculum, was an amazing man. And he said, I, I believe God's called me to go to Vietnam and do this. I'm like, man, you got to go. And this is right when you start having phone apps for languages. You find out dualingual Vietnamese. I mean, you got to go. Self-determination, when the Lord says, follow me, we got to follow. Without excuse. And that's the first act of self-determination that puts all the rest of the good ones in play for the rest of your life. Is to act upon the first one. When, when Jesus bids a woman and he bids a, a man to follow him, he calls us to die to ourselves and to commit to follow him and look into Jesus. Follow me, I will make you a fisher of men and lose our life in him and find our life through him. And that's, it's got to happen. And that's where we find our life and live the life worth living. And in that self-determination to respond in faith, then one step of faith becomes another step of faith. And the compound effects of steps of faith and a life of faith and a journey of faith and chapters of faith and seasons of faith. And then just your whole life is a legacy of faith as you keep choosing to live by faith and obey the spirit of the Lord speaking to you and speaking to me and speaking to us in the body of Christ for the call in our life. We are self-determined. It's your, it's, it's them, them, this, that, and everything else. And then the Holy Spirit says, but you. And no matter what our age is, young or old, it's, it really comes down to looking up to the Lord, look to the Lord to be radiant, looking in the mirror at that person and walking out that door and doing what God's called you to do. That's it. You look up, get right vertically. You look in the mirror, get right with that person, with the Lord, 
And then you walk out that door and you serve humanity, and that's the life that we're called to live. And we're self-determined to choose that life or not. But it really is simple, isn't it? It's not complicated. In fact, the next point will show how simple it is. The need to understand our calling is there, but the destiny of the calling is really fulfilled for our place in the universe and the human experience by not blaming the environment, not making excuses, but accepting responsibility, embracing the opportunities, find out what it is we're called to do, and go get it. I was going through my emails today, and I saw the email that Anthony Dean sent, Brian McDaniel's latest thing coming out of uh, Haiti, and he's in this thing, and he's, they're handing out Bibles, and they've turned the tide on the evil in their region, and good things are happening now, and I just think, like, Brian McDaniels is just so amazing. Some of you know him. He's just like, how do you even do that? Where people are killing each other, roadblocks, and doing all this stuff, and stealing, and the port, and all this crime and corruption. He just keeps going back, and now he's just like handing out Bibles to gang members who just are being offered eternal life. You, you find your calling, and you go get it. Brian McDaniel went on all kinds of missions. He was a financial investor guy a long time ago. And 20 years ago at WG, he gave his life, well, he had given his life to the Lord. He got more fired up for the Lord. And he went on this mission trip here, and he went on that mission trip there, and then this mission trip. But somehow when he went to Haiti, that was it. Like he just, God put him in the poorest, most violent country in the world and said, that's your calling. And Cross to Light has been going for at least 15 years now, the ministry. All those church plants. and See, you accept that responsibility, you go get it, you find it, and you make it happen without excuse, and I would say even without distraction. See, the call and the self-determination to obey the call is not subject to who's in power, not in power, who gained power, who lost power, who corrupts power, pretty much all of them, or anything else. The times that came before you, the times that you're in, it's about looking up, looking in the mirror, and walking out that door, and accepting the responsibility for what God has for your life in our timeline. It's a beautiful thing to be lost in the Lord and his calling. To serve the Lord without excuse. That's what Jesus really calls us to do in the New Testament. To follow him without apology, without excuse, and without distraction. And to find out truly what is that ultimate purpose going forward in our life as seasons change and good decisions is built on themselves and to fulfill it to the fullest. And it may seem insignificant, it may seem grand, but whether we fulfill it or not, it is certainly self-determined. Only you can fulfill God's call in your life for who you are at this age in your life, and only I can fulfill God's call in my life for who I am at this age in my life. It's the commonality we all have is individual free will choice with God to go fully after what he has or not. Now, the second thing we see here is in verse 8, where Asa did go for it. He, like, he took strength. It says that he took courage from the, the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet. So he received it and he went with it. He didn't double clutch. He got after it. And it says that he removed the abominable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. See, he had recaptured some territory in the north through victories, uh, previous battles with the northern kingdom. Not only did he remove the abominable idols on the hillsides within his jurisdiction that essentially was his, Judah and Benjamin, but what he'd actually inherited in expansion, he went after that too. In other words, he left no stone unturned in obeying the Lord by what he removed. 
a woman or a man of faith is often most identified by what we remove more than what we build. Because when we remove the things that are blocking us from what the Lord wants to build in our lives, then he'll build. But until we remove what's in our hands holding us back, he can't fill our hands with what's taking us forward. Not only did he remove, it says also that he restored the altar of the Lord. So he removed and he restored. He subtracted and he added a body of Christ. That's pretty simple math, isn't it? If you want to grow in the Lord, which I think most of you do, we're going to grow by what we subtract. Distractions, sin, compromises, bad attitudes, unforgiveness. We're going to grow by what we subtract, and then we're going to grow by what we rebuild. Rebuilding the altar is basically saying we're going to rebuild everything that's good, true, just, noble, and praiseworthy before the Lord in our life. It's not necessarily limited to like what we may have lost in an earlier time walking with the Lord. For example, my sister Barbie had a very strong walk with the Lord at one point in her life, in her 20s, very involved with the women's ministry and all these things, then bad men, bad decisions, pharmaceutical drugs, alcohol, homeless for, you know, six years on the streets. It all unraveled. But as she rebuilt her life and is celebrating six years of sobriety this month, by the way, as she rebuilt her life, she really was rebuilding. She wasn't just rebuilding the good things of the Lord in general that God would have for someone. She was rebuilding the good things that she once had with the Lord between her and the Lord. Talking with her about being single at 56 in her cute little house and her great life that she has. She said, it's so good with the Lord, she doesn't want to do anything to wreck it. And she says, I've only had bad men. You know, and, and uh, you know, like, well, good for you, Barbie. Like, because I asked, do you think you ever, like, no, no, no. And if I do, for sure, a prenuptial agreement. She goes, because every man I've ever had has taken everything I've ever owned, including my love and my soul and my heart. And in one case, even her faith. And, you know, I said to her, I go, I don't think you'll get a prenuptial. I promise you you'll get a prenuptial. Because your son, Jimmy, would want to make sure he had a prenuptial. You don't work hard for six years to rebuild your life to hand it over to someone that's going to take it all from you. And she's doing so good. And, you know, we wanted to keep doing good. I spent every day in Florida with my sister. That doesn't always happen when I go to Florida. I made sure because she wasn't working because she's recovering from the knee surgery. Every day she's with us, in the, with, my, with me and the family and the grandkids. You know, the grandkids love Aunt Barbie too. Coming to us, like, oh, Aunt Barbie. And like, it makes my sister so happy. They, Israel had lost so much that David had established for them. And in a sense, really, Asa was reclaiming things politically and socially and morally for the people that they had lost through Solomon, through Rehoboam, and some might have been rebuilt, recaptured through Amazia. But the invitation from the Lord, but you, was not just to, it really was to do what's right in his own life, that self-determination, but really for the people as a political leader. that There are things you can do, political decisions and power you have as a king, that you can make things better for everybody and make things right with the Lord. And so he removed the things that were offensive, they were evil and contrary to the Lord. He removed them, and the thing that would reestablish the things of faith, obedience, truth, holiness, joy, hope, and peace, he rebuilt those things. That altar being rebuilt represents all of that. 
Because that's all the Lord offers us through obedience. When we're obedient to the Lord and we're right with the Lord, there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. And those are all good things. When we're right with the Lord, we'll think on those things that are praiseworthy and honorable and, and good to the Lord. Things that are true, just, and noble. See, the fruitful life with the Lord that we choose or choose not to have, it really does go forward by what we remove and by what we build and restore. And I remember when I was coaching the Chilean surf team, the Olympic surf team, with Manuel Selman, who did go to the Olympics, that first Olympic experience in 2021. And I remember working with Manuel Selman. He's a very bright guy, very great athlete, too, and super driven. Of course, he's an Olympian and he's an outstanding athlete, very elite, highest level. Speaks English like a first language, too. And he was kind of hit a wall like a, a, about six months. It was after I retired from the U.S. surf team. We got together in Oceanside, and he kind of hit the wall because he was trying to qualify for the Olympics, get one of those 20 spots for that first Olympics. And I said, Manuel, the way you're going to make the Olympics is you need to figure out one thing that you need to remove from your life by 10 to 20% from your career and your personal life. And then you need to identify one thing that you can add to your life by 10 to 20% that will improve your life as a person and your, as an athlete. I never thought of that before. It's like it just came to me in that moment talking to him. He's like, wow, that totally makes sense. That's exactly what he did. He got the last spot in the Olympics. He was the 20th qualifier for the first Olympic surfing experience representing Team Chile in the Olympics. And my good friend, Magna Martinez, who replaced me as the coach of Team Chile, was his coach in the Olympics. I watched them at that event. It was amazing. It's true in athletics, but it's way more important and way more true. Because what does it say in Timothy? Godliness for ex- uh, physical, go- physical exercise profits you know, somewhat, but temporal. But godliness, pro- uh, practicing and exercising godliness, has great gain and great profit. That's what we want to do. Recognize in our life, listen, before we move on to this last point, recognize clearly and emphatically, isn't even as we're moving forward in the second half of this year, are there things that need to be removed that are holding back the peace, the power, the promises, and the blessings? And are there things that I need to go after more fervently that will accentuate and build that. You know, we talk about the consistency of good decisions. We talk about a pattern of life with good decisions. It creates momentum. And you're going like you're on that, remember the playground on this, the, the wheel, the, the rounder wheel, and you're all doing this. You're going in the right direction. And then, man, remember when someone come alongside and really get it moving? That's the inertia of full acceleration in the midst of the momentum. That's how you hit the super zone with the Lord. You're, you're going like this with the Lord. You're going like this, and you get rid of things that are holding you back, and then now you're getting, and all of a sudden, you just kick it in another gear, and off you go. And who knows? This might be the year of the Lord for you or me. Jennifer came to me today, my wife, and she said, hey, I read this devotion and that devotion, and they were both today about the return of Christ. And I said, ooh. And, you know, my phone with all my stuff. And Jennifer's like, she just knows I got my phone. These are things for the day. These are my goals. These are my reviews and all that stuff. I go, look at the number one thing every day. D-O-L is the number one thing. Day of the Lord. I remind myself every day the number one thing is this could be the day of the Lord. Not just that he's coming for everybody, but he's coming for me. 
I want you be worried about you for day of the Lord. I'm worried about me. I'm thinking about me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowing the Lord can come any day for you and me, which He will come and only come once for you, to be ready for the day of the Lord. What do we need to remove that God will bless for removing? It's addition by subtraction, actually, right? You lighten your load. And what do we need to add to really increase the inertia and the power and the momentum of those good things of the Lord in our life? Only the Lord has those answers for you and me personally. Then we see the final thing here in verse 9. I love this. It says, so he did all this. And then all of a sudden verse 9 says, then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, for they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with them. This is very easy to understand. This is what we call an effective witness. This is what we call being salt of the earth, letting your light so shine before men that they glorify your Father and the, in heaven because of your good works. This is what we really want our life to be, to be a, a light and a witness for the Lord, but an inspiration for others. When we accept responsibility for ourselves and, and people hang out with us and we're not blaming the boss, we're not blaming the president, we're not blaming the marine layer, we're not blaming the heat and the humidity, we're not blaming sharks, dolphins, or anything in between. Because I've seen both this year. <laughs> like, great personal growth with the Lord goes forward and in general, even apart from the Lord, when we no longer make excuses and we don't focus on things we have no control over, but we're focused on, but you, but you, be strong. Strengthen yourself. Don't let your hands be weak, for your work will be rewarded when we just simply embrace what God has for us, and there's no more distractions. We're free. We're just free from the distractions. There's such clarity of purpose with the Lord. And when we live a life like that, and we're letting the Lord remove things, and we're letting him add the things, and we're removing that which is of the flesh and pride and stumbling, and we're, we're adding that which is of the spirit and humility and blessing, people see it. People love to hang out with people that have humility and are spirit-filled. They may not know that's why they like having you around, but we're a blessing. And sometimes people don't want the light, so they expel the light. We understand that. Jesus said that. You might be the best employee and they just had to get rid of you because they're just living in sin and they see you every day and it just convicts them of their sin and they can't take it and they need to get you out of there. That happens. But most smart people know, like Pharaoh knew when you hire Joseph in the palace, that this guy is going to make me a lot of money. This guy is going to bring blessings on my life. Joseph in the Old Testament, in Pharaoh's house, well, he brought blessings to his dad, Jacob, before his brothers betrayed him. In Pharaoh's house... Pharaoh prospered because of him. In the prison, the prisoner, the prison guard and the prisoners prospered because of him. And then when he became the number two man in all Egypt, all of Egypt and the surrounding nations prospered because of him. And he's in Hebrews 11 for his faith. He was a man of faith. And you as a woman, and me as a man, and us as men, when we let God, when we accept responsibility without excuse, we embrace opportunity, you know, as, you know, not the obstacles, but the opportunities in that. And we do that with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we just go forward and upward and onward and forward. Then it becomes contagious for the people around us. People, they, they're, they're drawn to that light. Because that light is a light of faith, hope, and love. And that's the light of the kingdom. 
It's the light of eternity and the joy of the Lord shining in their lives through you and I, and it's our influence on people. When people see the blessings upon your marriage because you remove the things that are offensive, bitterness and pride, anger, lust, unbridled lust, things like that, like selfishness, people see the blessing on your marriage. When they see how you manage your resources, that you're not in debt, but you're right side up because you live within your means, because you let the Holy Spirit guide you and teach you discipline and self-control because godliness with contentment is great gain. And you learn how to live within your means. And people are drawn to that. They see you're the head, not the tail, because that's what the Lord allows us to be. And they're like, well, I'm always the tail. In fact, I'm always chasing my tail. Why do you seem like you have vision and clarity and purpose in everything you're doing? Because I, you know, I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all things are added to me. How did you know to make those good decisions? Because I seek the Lord and he gave me wisdom. The Bible says if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, he'll give it to him. You come into inheritance, ask the Lord what to do with it. And he'll give you wisdom what to do with it. Or you can be a fool in your folly and just waste it. But if you remove the things, short-term thinking, small-minded thinking, selfish thinking, carnal thinking, and replace it with kingdom thinking, sowing bountifully, the kingdom, people, serving, blessing, like God's going to bless you. And people are going to see that and go like, how did you get the blessings? You're like, come over here and I'll give you the blessings. Or as Pastor Chuck used to always say, right, under the spout, where the glory comes out. Yeah, our God's a blessing God. Come, let's, come, let's get under the spout. Like, how, how is it that, you know, you got slandered, thrown under the bus, and you didn't even respond? Now, what's the respond? The Lord give it, the Lord take it. Like the book of Job. He can give it, he gives some more. And if he doesn't, who wants it? If he doesn't replace it, then it's a snare for me to go get it. So it's better just to let the Lord build the house. Solomon himself said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. When people see our actions and reactions as a spirit-filled woman and a spirit-filled man by, again, choosing the right things, removing the wrong things, and adding the right things, it just, it's the work of the Lord, and they see it. The work is in us, in our character, and how we are as people of faith, and then it's through us in, in how we just handle things. It's a beautiful thing to live by faith and let the Lord just work through our life. You're little Miss Sunshine. You're Mr. Happy Face. It's not a perfect day every day. It's not a great day every day, but we're going forward every day and we're making good decisions as a whole. That's, that's how it's meant to be. And in being that way, we inspire others. When we strengthen ourselves and we take courage and we don't have weak hands, Right? So many people seem like they're kind of weak and impotent these days. There's no power. It's like the old Warner Brothers cartoons, bang, sign, bang. There's no power. We need some, like when people really see that the power of the Lord and the love of the Lord and the fruit of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord, man, it's a beautiful thing. And it says they gathered. They gathered. That's what our life is. Our life with Christ is gathering people to Christ through the light of Christ in our life. Our life in Christ is gathering people because the, the, we're salt and they're, and they're thirsting for the living water. And Jesus said he's the living water. That's our life. Again, some people don't come to the light because they love darkness. But you know, a lot more people come to the light when they see the quality of life in the light. And Jesus draws men, to, men and women to himself. Jesus could make your greatest adversary fall on their face and acknowledge your faith in one second. We know when the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament, hey, everybody's on their face, on the ground. And you think, why doesn't the Lord do that? Why doesn't he just say, get saved or else? You know, like everyone, you know, the whole universe, the whole planet, 8 billion people on their face, get saved now or else. Like, no, that's not how the Lord works. That's not self-determined choice. 
That's robotic. That's not how the Lord works. And he chooses to work through you and me. That's the most amazing thing, right? The glorious gospel works through you and me. The keys of the kingdom are entrusted to us, not by what we conquer, but how we serve and how we live. Asa made really good decisions. He was held accountable, but you, and when God said, be strong and do not let your hands be weak, he heeded that. And he took courage, and he removed this, and he restored that. And in in so doing, his courage and his faith and his actions inspired not only the people that he inherited as a king, Judah and Benjamin, but people from other tribes were drawn to him. In other words, the influence of his life exceeded the boundaries that probably anyone would have thought his life could have been. In other words, you need a bigger vision. Or you need a bigger net. Or you need another boat to help you with what's in your net, like in the Gospels. Small-minded obedience becomes big-minded fruit with the Lord. And all those good decisions year after year, day after day, year after year, produce an incredible inspiration and influence in your life. His life was an inspiration and it was a great influence on his generation. He reigned 41 years. He was, he, some things went bad the last few years of his life, but that was his choice. What if you and I were there and we were inspired by him when he removed these things and restored the altar and we decided we're going to obey the Lord and even though the king, like, oh, the king's gone, like, oh, the king's in trouble right now. He made a deal with Ben-Hadad. Yeah, you hear his foot's all, he's got a foot problem right now and, and he threw the prophet in jail. Like, well, too bad for the king, but, you know, we're going to do the right thing in our house in Judah. You see what I'm saying? Even though he went bad doesn't mean any of these people had to go bad. Because a king goes bad doesn't mean we have to go bad. Because a boss goes bad doesn't mean we have to go bad. Because a spouse goes bad doesn't mean we have to go bad. Because parents go bad doesn't mean we have to go bad. Because children go bad doesn't mean we have to go bad. We choose to do the right thing. And to choose the fear of the Lord and obedience to the Lord is the wisest choice we'll make every single day. And it'll always have blessings upon it. And in so doing, our work, that workmanship, from before the foundation of the world that God has called us to, and through obedience, entering into it becomes destiny of our life, that work will be rewarded for all eternity. So keep removing the things that should be removed, and keep adding the things that should be added, and don't worry what the score looks like right now. It'll all play out on the day of the Lord.